Welcome back to Black to Nature, the podcast. I'm Professor Stephanie Dunning, and I'm your host. A lot has happened since my last episode, which was a few months ago. The biggest thing, though, is that my book is out. So if you've been listening to this podcast and you're interested in these discussions about the intersections of representation, Blackness, and nature, please check it out. It's called Black to Nature, Pastoral Return in African-American Culture. You can order it wherever books are sold online or check out the University Press of Mississippi's website. The next episode of this podcast will feature my best friend and colleague, Candace Jenkins of the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, interviewing me about the book, and hopefully there'll be some stuff in that episode from some of the events and interviews that I've done about the book since it came out. On this episode, I talked to J.T. Roan, who is Assistant Professor of African and African-American Studies in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. He received his PhD in history from Columbia University, and he is a 2008 graduate of the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia. His current work on Black ecologies with Justin Hosby approaches Black ecologies with, quote, a two-pronged analytic. And I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from the Black Ecologies website. The Black Ecologies Project provides, quote, a way of historicizing and analyzing the ongoing reality that Black communities in the African diaspora are most susceptible to the effects of climate change, including rising sea levels, subsistence, sinking land, as well as the ongoing effects of toxic stewardship. And secondly, it, quote, names the corpus of insurgent knowledge produced by these same communities, which should have bearing on how we historicize the current crisis and how we conceive of futures outside of destruction. So can you talk a little bit about your concept of Black ecologies and how that might differ from broader like ecological models or other kinds of ecological interrogations? Certainly. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think for Justin and and me, um, Black ecologies really is a way of naming that kind of duality, both the reality of like Black vulnerability to environmental catastrophe, as we were talking about before with Katrina or storms or whatever else related to climatic change. And and then also as a way of thinking about um, the unique epistemologies uh, practices and visions for land and waterscapes that and, envir- and the environment that Black communities forward. And sometimes that's explicit environmental um, critique or understanding, or, you know, I, so some of my work, I've been writing some about June Jordan recently. You know, we have, I have to always clarify that Black environmental thought is not just the kind of practical knowledge or something like that, that we have folks who've been doing environmental design since <laughs> since forever. So it's both a formal and an informal kind of, you know, sets of knowledges. And I think, you know, I mean, we adapted Black Ecologies from Nathan Hare's 1970 essay called Black Ecology. And in that essay, I mean, Hare connects, first of all, he takes to task the environmental movement as it's being galvanized and organized by predominantly white communities in that moment. 
particularly because it ignores black life, right? <laughs> so he says in that essay, black ecology is like is the issue of housing. Like urban land is a question of the environment. It's yeah. not just some nature out over there somewhere, but it's really all these kinds of social relations. And I think that's what we um, kind of, how we approach, you know, thinking about black ecologies. June Jordan, a poet, an activist, a teacher, and so much more, developed a relationship to environmental issues when she dedicated herself to transforming Harlem into a more healthful environment. Here's an excerpt from a letter she wrote to Buckminster Fuller in the 1960s. Recently, I was able to get away to the country for several days. As the plane tilted into the hills of Laconia, New Hampshire, I could see no one, but there was no tangible obstacle to the imagining of how this land, these contours of growth and rise and seasonal definition, could nurture and extend human life. There was no obvious site that might be cleared for housing. No particular grove nor patch visually loomed as more habitable, more humanely yielding than another. And yet, I surmised no menace of elements inimical to life in that topography. It seemed that any stretch, that every slope provided living possibilities. With just a tent and a few patches, just the minimum of provisions could convert a randomly selected green space into human shelter. Perhaps one explanation of this easy confidence is that such land clearly suggests the activities required for construction of efficient shelter, and further, these requirements imply necessary labor, both feasible and quickly rewarding for human beings to accomplish. By contrast, any view of Harlem will likely indicate the presence of human life, people whose surroundings suggest that survival is a mysterious and even pointless phenomenon. On the streets of Harlem, sources of sustenance are difficult to discover, and indeed, sources of power for control and change are remote. Nor is labor available, labor that directly affects in manifold ways the manners of existence. Keeping warm is a matter of locating the absentee landlord rather than independent expedition to gather wood for a fire. This relates to our design for participation by Harlem residents in the birth of their new reality. I would think that this new reality of Harlem should immediately reassure its residents that control of the quality of survival is possible and that every life is valuable. So that made me think about something I read in, in one of your pieces where you were talking about counter cartographies. And I, I thought that was a really great way to articulate something I was noticing about, you know, the way black people engage space as a kind of counter cartography or like spatial tactics of resistance. So I think in turn, for me, you know, I look, I look at spatial um, and ecological tactics that emerge from um, plotting and from thinking, and you know, for me, plotting um, has a number of different registers, and I'm basing that on Sylvia Winter's like early '70s essay. In the essay that JT is talking about here, called "Novel in History: Plot and Plantation," Sylvia Winter writes: For African peasants transplanted to the plot. All the structures of values that had been created by traditional societies of Africa, the land remained the earth, and the earth was a goddess. Man used the land to feed himself and to offer first fruits to the earth. His funeral was the mystical reunion with the earth. 
Because of this traditional concept, the social order remained primary. Around the growing of yam, a food for survival, he created on the plot of folk culture, the basis of a social order in 300 years. But, you know, this kind of um, blurring between the different modes of plotting that happens, um, particularly in the antebellum period in Virginia, but also in other places as well, um, in which Black communities create all kinds of uh, spaces in the interstices of plantations for just operating their day-to-day lives. And that has a rich, intimate, they have the rich, intimate cartographies and knowledges around water and land landscapes is essential for that. Part of it is, of course, plot in the sense, the most direct sense is the piece of trash land that masters download responsibility for eating uh, onto enslaved folks and particularly um, enslaved women and elders and other people who are just kind of, if they don't grow stuff and catch stuff and hunt stuff, anybody gonna eat like that, right? Yeah. We know that a peck of corn a week is not enough to, right. to do grueling manual labor. I am a reaper whose muscles set at sundown. All my oats are cradled, but I am too chilled and too fatigued to bind them, and I hunger. Gene Toomer from Kane. So I think, you know, that's originally a kind of um, part of the kind of um, violent enactment of slavery that happens is the downloading of that responsibility. But what, as Winter and I draw on Winter there, um, elaborates out from that, that also becomes the site and the source of the replication of non-commodity value around land. So for her, that's like the spiritual, the, all these other various kinds of elements. And so I think about how that um, how that operates as a system alongside um, the plot as a, a site of land. I think about the plot as a burial ground and the way that that connects people to a, a landscape and a waterscape. Um, plot as you know, a kind of wide and uh, wider roving and imaginary um, that leads into a black commons. Um, and then also plot as like open rebellion. Um, right. I think, uh, especially if we think about the ways in which climate change or the Anthropocene or other, other discourses are euphemisms for slavery, violence, genocide, and colonialism, then we, it, it forces us to rethink, okay, well, what are these quotidian and eventful um, resistances how what are what are what are their ecological components one of the things that connects my work to jt's work is the way in which we are both considering how nature and ecology operates at the site of resistance in black to nature i consider a largely discarded pastoral ethos looking at texts that productively question the contemporary boundaries of black ontology and stake a claim for the contemporary Black person in both time and place. Writing in her essay, Earthbound, Bell Hooks notes, quote, Backwoods folks tend to ignore the rules of society, the rules of law. In the backwoods, one learned to trust only the spirit, to follow where spirit moved. Ultimately, no matter what was said or done, the spirit called us from a place beyond words, from a place beyond man-made law. 
The wild spirit of unspoiled nature worked its way into the folk of the backwoods, an ancestral legacy handed down from generation to generation. And its fundamental gift, the cherishing of that which is most precious, freedom. And to be fully free, one had to embrace the organic rights of the earth. End quote. Hook's formulation here seems to me to speak to the kind of abolition that Jared Sexton writes about. This vision of freedom is not related to civil rights or the language of equality. In fact, Hook's construction of freedom here is outside of society and beyond the law. Sadia Hartman articulates the limits and problems of this historical civil rights progress narrative when she writes about how laws can, quote, dissimulate the encroaching and invasive forms of social control, end quote, enacted against Black people. My book, Black to Nature, embraces Hooks's notion that to be fully free, one must, quote, embrace the organic rights of the earth, end quote. As such, I am interested in the way nature arises in works whose texture and tone is nihilistic and pessimistic as evidence of what happens when the rainbow is enough. At the same time, these texts carve out space, natural space, for their black characters to feel at home on the earth in ways that are unimaginable under the regime of white supremacist society. And so... In, my, in the first project, in the book project, I really look at how those also shape northern cities, like, um, you know, across the kind of vicissitudes and, and breakdown of the Black commons that happens with Civil War and Reconstruction, Black communities hold on to an outlook around water and landscapes that's not simply about, um, that's not simply about commoditization or extraction or any of those kinds of violent domineering forms of ownership and mastery. Um, and I think what you were saying outside about the outdoors earlier is definitely the case in Philadelphia. I mean, mm -hmm. and it draws that it's directly related to um, the advance of the Jim Crow North. Embedded within all of that are these, um, you know, various uses. And I'll just say this, um, just because it's fresh on my head. Um, I think about um, I've been writing about the 1964 riot in North Philly. Um, and you can learn a lot, a, a good amount about how black communities are using geography and, um, and the kind of spatial tactics of the enduring kind of outlook of the plot in that, I mean, plotting in the black commons in that moment. Um, you know, it, it starts when a woman is arrested uh, forcefully, she resists arrest, people gather and, but late and later a, um, you know, the crowd gathers or whatever. And later, uh, there's a rumor that spreads around North Philly that they killed a pregnant black woman. But immediately, like when cops try to arrest her, one of the first things that happens is people start throwing glass bottles from rooftops. Like that is already black communities. I mean, they're weaponizing it. And that moment is a kind of pushback against police violence. Mm -hmm. But it means that people are already outdoors in ways that aren't even mapped, right? That aren't, that are unthought of, that are unthinkable from the kind of down, you know, the kind of top-down bird's eye view that dominant urban issues, or that in combination with the other mode that dom dominant urban issues for mapping the city, which is like the beat patrol, like right. the pedestrian. There's uh, so there we can see these kind of enduring meso registers of like black space that are not easily flattened in, you know, oh well, that's just a dead neighborhood or whatever. Um, <clears throat> And I think, I mean, in some ways that manifests 
um, the kind of environmental stuff manifests most powerfully with groups like Move by the 70s, right? The Move organization was founded in 1972 by a man named John Africa. The organization was sometimes described as a fusion of black power and flower power, and the Move folks embraced a natural ethos. In 1985, the city of Philadelphia dropped two one-ton bombs on the homes of the Move people. They destroyed an entire city block and killed 11 people, six adults, and five children, ranging from ages 7 to 13. It has recently been discovered that the remains of the murdered children of Move were being held all this time by two Ivy League universities for anthropological research rather than being released to their loved ones who are still alive. John Africa once said, All living beings, things that move, are equally important, whether they are human beings, dogs, birds, fish, trees, ants, weeds, rivers, wind, or rain. To stay healthy and strong, life must have clean water, clean air, and pure food. If deprived of these things, life will cycle to the next level, or, as the system says, die. It's hard for me to talk about what happened to the move folks without getting choked up. But one of the things that we can learn from the history of the MOVE organization, which still exists today, despite the efforts of this regime, is that that there are these spaces within Black thinking and Black life which are deeply and intimately concerned with nature. One of the ways in which Black love of natural spaces has motivated change in this country can be seen around the MOVE organization, but it can also be seen around the Loving v. Virginia case. And this may not be obvious to people at first glance in terms of why this is an important moment of a Black ecological resistance, but I'm going to explain it here in my conversation with JT. But I want to ask you about Caroline County, Virginia, because that's where um, the Lovings were from. The whole reason any of that happened was because um, Mildred Loving did not want to live in the city. I kind of make this argument that it was actually the landscape that motivated um, her writing to the ACLU and and eventually, you know, the interracial marriage thing going to the Supreme Court. And, 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 and I mean, like they were never, like she was never involved in civil rights after that. Like she just wasn't a political person at all. Like it was 100% about, I want to live in the country. I don't want to have to live in DC, which is like the only place even close by where, where she and her husband could live. Mildred and Richard Loving were the interracial couple from Caroline County, Virginia, whose letter to Bobby Kennedy began the series of events which brought their case to the Supreme Court and would ultimately legalize interracial marriage in all of the United States. And people say, or, you know, it has been said that Caroline County and all of that, like the, like the racial politics around there were like 
a little bit different from other parts of the country. Oh yeah. Well, it's, I mean, a lot of their story, the biography, her biography and all that plays out across the county line between Essex and Carolina, because my home county and Carolina are bordering each yeah. other. Um, it is distinct. I mean, there's a whole, if you go back through free, um, free, like free census, like who was free in the 1850s, there's subsets of families that you could still identify with that portion of the county. They talk very distinctly. Um, like you can, somebody from that area and into Caroline, I could point, I could tell you that that's where they from if I hear them talk. And I think, I mean, they're, uh, they are, I mean, I think it's a number of things going on. Um, black and indigenous intermarriage, but also black and white in, in a, um, and I think that I only mentioned that in relation to like land, because a lot of those um, folks had land from before freedom, right? Um, and that's all tied to the water. Um, all of those places are were roads didn't really come all the way through there until the 30s, right? I mean, right. if we're being honest, a lot of that until the third great hurricane of 1933 that destroyed the water boat infrastructure, all of that area you had to navigate pretty much by water. Um, I mean, obviously there are some roads and there are dirt roads and all that, but for the most part, um, that's what that that is galvanizes the um, infrastructures that come after the 30s is, is the destruction of of, um, of the wharf system and the riverboat system, which was on its way out because of automobility anyway, but which that just kind of sealed the deal around. Mm -hmm. But I've been thinking a lot about how you get around out there without a car. Like if you were, you know, if we were, if some of those, for example, I think what prompted me was where I've lived since my mom heard my stepfather in Virginia, like the south side of Tappahannock. There is a there's a bridge, and I was just walking and doing film stuff around the marsh and the water, and I noticed that the bridge was built um, by the Civilian Conservation Corps or somebody, you know, like you know, 1930s, 36, I believe that bridge was built. I'm like, how would you even get here if this bridge wasn't here? And you really can't, right? Like, it's yeah. like, so I mean, I'm not sure if there, if you know, maybe there, I haven't done enough research yet. Maybe there are a bunch of wooden structures because there are some of those still left. But my my image of the, and especially because black people didn't have automobiles really en you know, masse out there until like the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, you know, there's, it's just a whole other kind of orientation. And I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of their, where they met and all of that happens across the county line and battery at this little like, what was like a speakeasy essentially, mm -hmm. or like a food joint. Um, so I think, I think very much there is this kind of, there's a very distinct set of people that live in that area. I, you know, if I hear a certain last name, and they're from that part of Virginia, I know where they're from. I hear how they talk. And I think, you know, Mildred is definitely a part of that. that yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's quite isolated. I don't, you know, until, I mean, there was like the King's Road that goes all the way back to the colonial period that goes back up in there. But again, since most black people didn't have car, like mass automobility until much later, a lot of that you're not just walking back, you know, you're not just going back there, right? So anyway. I mean, the thing about that loving story that always just really struck me so much is how much it was about the land. Mm. 
how much it was about that place mm. and her unwillingness to give up that place. She mm. was just unwilling to give up that place. Mm. Um, and, and I'm sure many a people told her, why don't you just move to New York or why don't you just stay in DC mm. or whatever? But she didn't want to, she wanted to be there. And I, and I think, you know, um, and this is something that happens with Katrina too, I think. People assume that Black people don't have any feelings mm. about place. And there are, these, there are these instances that show that's not true. And like, sure. you know, so like when people are like, well, with Katrina, why, didn't, why, did, why are people going back? Or, you know, why didn't people evacuate sooner or whatnot? Mm. And it never, it doesn't seem to occur to people like, well, because like they love that place. And they didn't want to leave that place. When I think of home, I think of a place where there's love overflowing. I wish I was home. I wish I was back there with the things I've been knowing. Wind that makes the tall trees bend into leaning. Suddenly, the snowflakes that fall have a meaning. Sprinkling the scene makes it all clean. Maybe there's a chance for me to go back now that I have some direction. It would sure be nice to be back home where there's love and affection. And just maybe I can convince time to slow up, giving me enough time in my life to grow up. Time be my friend. Let me start again. Those are lyrics from the song Home by composer Charlie Smalls, sung by Stephanie Mills and Diana Ross in The Wiz. I think that's, I think that narrative about black blackness and placelessness is a, a convenient rule for lots of violence to of displacement, ongoing displacements, you know. And I think it mean come it comes up in my work around Philly. Um, white white dominant urbanists see nothing in black neighborhoods but death and dying right they can't imagine that these people don't want to be displaced or even moved into public housing or some other formation that's designed to reform formulate how they interact with each other um the the stoop and those kinds of space like they just have no sense that that is like a whole that there's a whole black geographic cartographic sensibility that's that's specific to place, that's specific to land and waterscapes, and that even when it's dislocated, it's still enacted in all kinds of like notions about the new place, right? I mean, migrants, just like the large, the larger African diaspora, folks who take place in the Great Migration, don't forget Virginia or North Carolina. They take it with them. Suddenly my world's gone and changed its face, but I still know where I'm going. I have had my mind spun around in space, and yet I've watched it growing. Oh, and if you're listening, God, please don't make it hard to know if we should believe in things that we see. Tell us, should we run away? Should we try and stay? Or would it be better just to let things be? Living here in this brand new world might be a fantasy, but it's taught me to love, so it's real, real to me. And I've learned that we must look inside our hearts to find a world full of love 
like yours, like mine, like home. I can't include my entire conversation with JT because it was long and it was rich and it was generative. And this podcast would be two to three hours long if I included the whole thing. But at a certain point, we started talking about Afro-pessimism and we started talking about the Afro-pessimist notion of abolition. Essentially, I argued that nature is a metaphor for abolition in these texts, that it points towards a space outside of the regime of white supremacy, outside of the regimes of Western society, and asks us to think about the fact that white supremacy as a system is bounded and that our home might lie elsewhere outside of the boundary of this system, of this regime. Yeah, no, and I think that's your point, what you were saying about abolition is so critical. I mean, we're not, I think that's part of what we talk about, Justin and I talk about through Black ecologies, is like, we're not looking for, <laughs> we're not looking for a kind of resolution to this state. The poetry of Lucille Clifton articulates my feeling of joy when I'm in the woods when I wake up each day having survived both the state and the unexpected vicissitudes of health, and when I stand outside in the blackness of the night at one with everything. In her poem, Won't You Celebrate With Me, she writes, Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model, born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay. My one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Perhaps there is a time, a moment yet to come, when we, as former captives of civilization, newly at one with the natural world, will look back upon the state which exerted itself to death in attempts to keep us from life and marvel that it did not succeed. Thank you, JT, for being on the show today. It was so wonderful talking with you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It feels so good to be back here at my computer editing this podcast and recording these clips for you and just creating this collage of information um, about nature, about blackness, about resistance. So I'm so happy to share this episode with you. There's a lot that's going to be happening over the summer in terms of my journey into various natural spaces. So I will be visiting six national parks this summer, and I hope to document a lot of that on my Instagram channel. So please check me out on Instagram at black underscore the number two underscore nature. One of the things that has been so wonderful about doing this podcast and also about uh, creating a presence for Black to Nature on Instagram is that I've been able to see that there's a huge burgeoning movement of people of color, Black people, and all kinds of other folks who we don't normally associate with an outdoorsy ethos 
are embracing nature and are getting out there and doing stuff. So I really encourage you to check out some of these uh, organizations. Of course, there's Outdoor Afro, which I probably have mentioned at some point in the podcast. There's the organization Black and Camping, and they do a lot of campouts. And that would be a great way if you're interested in camping, you're interested in doing outdoor activities, doing some of the Black and Camping events would be a really wonderful way to uh, introduce yourself to camping in a safe environment, in an environment of community. So on that note, I am going to do my Black to Nature camp book review this time because I hope that some of you who haven't gotten into camping would be interested in doing so. For this episode's Black to Nature camp book rating, I'm going to talk about a KOA campsite in Mackinac, Michigan. This is in the northernmost part of Michigan, and we stayed on the Lake Michigan side. Like most KOAs, this KOA campsite has laundry facilities, a camp store, a swimming pool, and even a few cabins that you could rent. We went there during the Perseid shower a couple of years ago, and because we were there to watch the Perseid shower, it was packed. The campground was very, very, very crowded. We ended up at the KOA because the state park was already booked up by the time we decided to go. But KOAs are a great entry-level camping site for folks who are new to camping. And this particular KOA, we had absolutely no problem, and it was incredibly diverse, incredibly friendly, and we had an awesome time there. Near this area for camping, you can also visit Mackinac Island. You can take a ferry over to Mackinac Island and you can visit that place. It's kind of a touristy thing, but if you're in the area, you might as well. Um, and there is also the Headlands International Dark Sky Park. So you can go there very late at night and you can look up and you can see the stars in a way that you simply cannot in a city setting. In city settings, there's a tremendous amount of light pollution. And even in some country places like where I live, there's still some light pollution from houses. So the stars are not quite as vivid as they are in a place like the Headlands International Dark Sky Park. So I must recommend that if you do camp in northern Michigan that you go to the Headland International Dark Sky Park. It is totally worth it. During the day, you can go to the beach along Wilderness Park Drive. Any of the beaches along that stretch of road around Trails End Bay are absolutely gorgeous and stunning and beautiful. So I am going to give camping in the northern Michigan Mackinac area a five out of five Black to Nature camp book rating. I highly recommend it. Thank you for listening today. All of the music used in this episode is from the audio library of YouTube, where musicians allow content creators to use their music without paying. So I really appreciate them. Two of the songs used in this episode were written by Kevin McLeod. One of them is called Acrolate, and the other one of them is called Loss, and it's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution. I am going to include a screenshot of the license on my Black and Country Facebook page. Thank you for listening to Black to Nature, the podcast. 
and a very enthusiastic thank you to Professor J.T. Roan for being featured on this episode. If you're interested in more on this topic, please Google Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African American Culture, my book, which came out on Earth Day, April 22nd, 2021, from the University Press of Mississippi. I will also include links to Professor J.T. Roan's Black Ecology Project on the Black and Country Facebook page. Thank you again for listening to this conversation, and until the next episode, keep on blooming. <laughs>